Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware, we have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit, but frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to For Fuck's Sake, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Ellen, and today I have with me a sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad. Katie is feeling a little bit under the weather today, so she will be with us in spirit and post-production. Filling in for her is our support badger, Carly. Hi, friends. So, let's just fly into the Phoenix flashback. Last week, we covered the first half of Chapter 16 in The Hogshead and the corresponding film scenes. Student life continues to be cheery as ever. Hermione can't count and Victor can't read, but Ron is more concerned that they can both write. To each other, that is. Filch finds a way to somehow become even creepier than usual. The trio are not nearly as suspicious of all the red flags in the hogshead as they should be. And to call Harry overwhelmed by the number of people who show up at the hogshead would be an understatement akin to calling Umbridge an inept twat waffle. Now, back to you in the studio. During episode 146, Unhappy Hour, our Potter pondering was, what are your thoughts on the bandaged wizard and the veiled witch being left out of the hogshead scene? Hey Ellen, hey Katie, Jackson here with this week's Potter pondering. So what do I think about the veiled witch and the guy covered in bandages being left out of the hogshead? Yeah, I'm with Ellen and Katie on this one. Even if they didn't reveal who they were in the movie, it would have added to the aesthetic of the hogshead. You know, the pub where the dodgy guys hang out. So, yeah, I hate it. Hi, Ellen and Katie. This is Ashley with this week's Potter Pondering. How do I feel about the movie leaving out the veiled witch and the bandaged wizard in the Hogsmeade scene? I honestly don't have too much emotion about them leaving this out. It was other aspects about this first meeting of Dumbledore's army that were missing that kind of pissed me off more, you know, with the gallons and how she got that from the Dark Mark and how everybody was there just to figure out what the fuck happened to Cedric and more people were more there, you know, to actually learn from Harry and not just be, you know, pissed off at him. That kind of, you know, irked me a bit, but not so much this. It was fun to piece that together in the book, you know, as it was revealed that the Veiled Witch was Mundungus and the Bandit Wizard was Willie whatever, because I can't remember his name, and him telling Umbridge and Fudge about it to get out of those regurgitating toilets shits he had going on and that's how she came up with educational decree number one banning all the outside get-togethers and you know that's cool and kind of funny to piece together in a book but you know i guess it's not necessary in your little short ass movie compared to this long ass book to push your plot line along we're just gonna make a fucking montage yeah so i really don't feel too much away about it but it was a fun discovery to have while reading Hey guys, Mike calling to be Potter pondering about the Bandaged Wizard and the Veiled Witch being left out of the Hogshead. It really is another one of those things where I wish they'd had emphasized that would be like a nice nod to it. Like, but absolutely worth walking away. It didn't really matter in terms of the movie, but it would have been good. 
because I didn't really use that as an explanation for anything later on, it doesn't ultimately matter in the books. So, I mean, would have been cool, but not a huge deal. The movie's already ruined everything enough without even saying about that. So, yeah, would be nice, but not to worry about it. Anyway, that's it for me. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for your responses. Our trivia question last week was, what does Luna say Fudge has a private army of? Luna insists that Fudge has an army of heliopaths, which, according to her, are spirits of fire. Congratulations goes to Megan Slater. Yay! She's starting her streak back up at two weeks. Is she going to keep it going? We shall see. For now, let's dive into the second half of Chapter 16 in the Hogshead and the corresponding film scenes. Chapter 16, In the Hogshead, Part 2 Hermione's proclamation that Umbridge's rubbish lessons can't be called defense against the dark arts makes Anthony Goldstein say, hear, hear. Hermione continues to say that she thinks they should take matters into their own hands and learn how to defend themselves properly, not just theory, but real spells. Michael Corner speaks out to say that she wants to pass her defense against the dark arts, OWL, too, and Hermione agrees, but says that she also wants more than that. She wants to be properly trained because Lord Voldemort is back. At these words, the majority of the group has some kind of dramatic reaction, but they all look towards Harry. The blonde Hufflepuff Quidditch player aggressively asks where the proof that you-know-who is back, and Hermione starts to respond that Dumbledore believes it, but the blonde boy cuts her off to say that Dumbledore believes him as he nods at Harry. Ron rudely asks him who he is, and he introduces himself as Zachariah Smith before stating that he thinks they've got the right to know exactly what makes him say you know who is back. Hermione tries to navigate away from this topic, but Harry tells her it's all right and addresses it, telling him that he saw him. He reminds him that Dumbledore told the whole school what happened last year, and if they didn't believe him, he's not going to waste an afternoon trying to convince anyone. Zacharias dismissively says that Dumbledore only told them that Cedric Diggory was killed by you-know-who, and that Harry brought his body back, but they didn't get any details, and he thinks they'd all like to know how Diggory got murdered. Harry tells them that if they've come to hear exactly what it looks like when Voldemort murders someone, he can't help them. He plainly states that he doesn't want to talk about Cedric Diggory, and if that's what they're here for, they may as well clear out. He casts an angry look at Hermione, thinking that everyone just showed up to hear the freak's wild story, but no one leaves their chairs. They all continue to gaze at Harry, and Hermione continues her speech, saying that if they are interested in learning some defense, they need to figure out how they're going to organize it. The girl that Harry didn't recognize interrupts to ask Harry if it's true that he can produce a Patronus. As the group begins to murmur over this news, Harry defensively says yes. The girl asks if it's a corporeal Patronus, and Harry wonders if she knows Madame Bones. She smiles and explains that she's her auntie, adding that she's Susan Bones, again asking if it's really true that he makes a stag Patronus. Harry confirms this, and an impressed Lee Jordan exclaims that he never knew that. Fred grins at Harry and tells him that Mum told Ron not to spread it around, since she figured he got enough attention as it was. Harry mumbles that she's not wrong, and a couple of people laugh. Terry Boot asks if he killed a basilisk with the sword in Dumbledore's office, 
and when Harry confirms this, even more people look impressed. Then Neville speaks up to tell everyone about how Harry saved the Sorcerer's Stone from you-know-who. Cho reminds everyone of all the tasks he had to get through in the Triwizard Tournament, getting past dragons, merpeople, acromantulas, and whatnot. Being praised by Cho makes it very difficult for Harry to avoid looking pleased with himself, but he speaks up to tell everyone that he had a lot of help with that stuff. Michael Corner points out that he didn't with the dragon, and Susan says that no one helped him with the Dementors that summer, and Harry has to amend what he's saying. Zacharias cuts him off to ask if he's trying to weasel out of showing them anything, but Ron tells him to shut his mouth. Zacharias complains that they've all turned up to learn from him, and now he's saying he can't really do any of it. And this time, Fred and George snarl at him that that isn't what Harry was saying, and offer to clean out his ears with a lethal-looking metal instrument they pull from their Zonko's bag. Hermione quickly moves the topic along to get back to talking about how often they should meet, suggesting they start with once a week. Angelina says that it can't interfere with their Quidditch practice, and Cho and Zacharias agree that it can't with theirs either. Hermione says that she's sure they can find a night to suit everyone and also reminds them that it's rather important since they are talking about learning to defend themselves against Voldemort's Death Eaters. Ernie McMillan barks well said and states that he thinks this is possibly even more important than their OWLs. When no one disagrees, he continues expressing his confusion in getting such a useless teacher from the ministry during such a critical period. Hermione explains that they think Umbridge has some mad idea that Dumbledore will use the students in the school as a private army to mobilize against the ministry. Nearly everyone looks stunned by this news, except for Luna, who thinks it makes sense since Fudge has his own private army. Harry questions this, and Luna elaborates, telling everyone that he has an army of heliopaths, which are very tall spirits of fire. Hermione insists that Fudge does not have an army of heliopaths, that they don't even exist, and when she and Luna begin arguing about it, Ginny does such a perfect impression of Umbridge clearing her throat that several people look around in alarm before laughing. They get back on track and decide that once a week sounds good before moving on to discuss where they can meet. As this is more difficult to figure out, Hermione eventually just says they'll try to find a place somewhere and send a message round to everyone when they've got a time and a place for the first meeting. She then reaches into her bag and pulls out a parchment and Quill steals herself, then says she thinks everyone should write their name down so they know who was there. She also says that they all should agree not to shout about what they're doing, saying that if they sign, they are agreeing not to tell Umbridge or anyone else what they are up to. Fred immediately signs, but several others look less than pleased with the idea. Ernie expressing his concern about what will happen if Umbridge does find out. Hermione reminds him that he said it was the most important thing he'd do this year and testily asks if he thinks she'd leave the list lying around. With this, Ernie agrees to sign and no one else argues. After the last person signs, the group is left with an odd feeling that they just signed some kind of contract. Fred is the first to get up, saying he, George, and Lee have some items of a sensitive nature to purchase, and then everyone begins leaving in groups of two or three. Cho attempts to delay leaving, but her friend impatiently clicks her tongue and she has little choice but to leave with her, though she does look back and wave at Harry. Hermione happily says that she thinks that went well as they leave, still clutching their butterbeer. 
Ron expresses his dislike for Zacharias and Hermione confesses that she doesn't like him much either, but he overheard her telling Ernie and Hannah and seemed interested in coming. She says that she thinks the more the better and mentions that Michael Corner and his friends wouldn't have come if he weren't going out with Ginny, and this news causes Ron to choke on the last of his butterbeer. He blusters about this news and Hermione explains that they met at the Yule Ball and got together at the end of last year. She pauses in front of Scrivenshaft's quill shop and thinking she could use a new quill goes into the shop. Harry and Ron follow her in, the latter furiously demanding to know which one Michael Corner was. Hermione describes him as the dark one and Ron immediately says he didn't like him. Hermione mutters big surprise and Ron continues protesting, saying he thought Ginny fancied Harry. She shakes her head and explains that Ginny used to fancy Harry but gave up on him months ago, adding on to Harry that she still likes him though. Harry's head is too full of Cho to care too much about this but still realizes that this must be why she will actually talk in front of him now. Hermione confirms this, selects her quill and goes to pay, Ron still seething the whole time. She turns back around and tells him this behavior is exactly why Ginny never told him about Michael. She knew he'd take it badly. Ron is in denial that he is taking it badly, but Hermione just rolls her eyes at him and, in an undertone to Harry, says, talking about Michael and Ginny, what about you and Joe? Harry quickly asks what she means, wondering if he'd been that obvious, but Hermione simply smiles and points out that she couldn't keep her eyes off him. And Harry has never before appreciated just how beautiful Hogsmeade is. The movie section starts up with a boy questioning why they would need a proper defense against the dark arts teacher. Ron snarls back at him that you-know-who is back and calls him a tosspot. The boy retorts, so he says, as he nods towards Harry. And Hermione interjects to remind him that's what Dumbledore says. The boy says that Dumbledore says because he says and demands proof. Harry looks down dejectedly when another boy, sitting next to Jenny, speaks up and asks Potter to tell them more about how Diggory got killed. Cho, who is next to Luna, looks up at Harry with wide eyes. But Harry also stands and insists that he's not going to talk about Cedric. And if that's why they're all here, they should just clear out. Luna looks on in sympathy as Cho sighs and Harry turns to Hermione and whispers that they should just go since everyone thinks he's just some sort of freak. Hermione tells him to wait and Luna speaks up to ask if it's true that he can produce a Patronus charm. Everyone looks at Harry, but it is Hermione who answers the question, telling them all that she has seen it. Dean is surprised and impressed that he can, and Neville joins in the conversation to tell the group that Harry also killed the Basilisk with the sword in Dumbledore's office. Ginny confirms this, and Ron adds that in third year, Harry fought off about a hundred Dementors at once. Hermione begins to tell them all that last year he really did fight off you-know-who in the flesh, but Harry cuts her off to explain that it all sounds great when you say it like that, but the truth is that most of it was just luck. He says that he didn't know what he was doing half the time and nearly always had help. Hermione tries to say that he's just being modest, but Harry insists that he's not. And he describes how facing that kind of thing in real life is not like school, where you can just make mistakes and try again the next day. He tells them that they don't know what it's like out there, when you're a second away from being murdered or watching a friend die right before your eyes. Everyone looks down somberly as Harry retakes his seat. Hermione sits back down as well and agrees with him that they don't, 
which is why they need his help. She takes a breath and steals herself to actually say Voldemort's name when talking about actually having a chance to beat him. Another boy asks if he's really back, and when Harry nods, everyone seems to accept this. The scene shifts to everyone lining up to sign a piece of paper with the heading Dumbledore's Army written across the top, as Hermione sighs in relief. It then cuts to Harry, Hermione, and the Weasleys walking across the covered bridge to the castle as Harry is saying first they need to find a place to practice. Ginny suggests using the Shrieking Shack, but Harry points out that it's too small. Hermione thinks that they could use the forest, but Ron thinks that's not bloody likely. Jenny then asks Harry what happens if Umbridge does find out, and Hermione answers, saying, who cares? She goes on to say it's sort of exciting breaking the rules, and Ron wants to know who she is and what she's done with Hermione Granger. She then changes the subject to bring up one of the positive things that came out of today, telling Harry that Cho couldn't take her eyes off of him. They continue walking as Harry looks pleased and Jenny a bit put out by the news. So now we'll move on to our compare and contrast section. And as this is the first time you actually get to sit in and do this with me, Yahoo! instead of just listening through Discord, we're just going to go through and talk about what was in the books, what's in the movies, and see what conversations happen along the way. So surprisingly, these are pretty accurate to one another. They are. The movie did stay pretty close. It clearly streams out a lot, but that's just what happens. Anybody who's read the books and watched the movies absolutely knows that. And if you listen to our podcast, you know that in greater detail. Indeed. As our support badger is one who does listen to the podcast and has read the books and watched the movies. I know that you know this too. <laughs> yep. So this half of the book chapter, we're picking it up right after Hermione makes that big announcement that Pepto Bitch Mall sucks. Of course. And she's not teaching them a goddamn thing. Surprise. And the entire group is just like, no, she's really not. And Anthony Goldstein is the one that says, here, here. In the books. In the books. <laughs> this kind of gives Hermione a little bit more courage to continue speaking. And this is when she really states that we need to take matters into our own hands so that we can learn more than just theory because theory is useless in the real world. You don't ever really get anything unless you actually practice it hands-on. Right. As teachers, we that. Know is that is the way that you learn. And you are a newer teacher than I am. And I'm sure that you are seeing firsthand right now that you're learning a lot more actually doing than you ever did in school learning how to do. Absolutely. So it absolutely applies yes. in this as well. You can't just learn the theory of something. You have to do it. Michael Corner speaks out to say that... Hermione just really wants to pass her defense against the dark arts OWL, too. And Hermione says, yes, that is accurate because it's Hermione and we all know that she wants to get good grades. But she does specifically say that it's more than that. She's best friends with Harry Potter, the person that Lord Voldemort is going to come after. Are we not going to acknowledge that, Michael Corner? <laughs> so that's my thought process. Yeah, it might be about school a little bit, but also there's a bigger picture. Hello, Dark Wizard. He's yes. back. Yeah. Maybe they don't all believe it at this point, but she directly states it right now. Lord Voldemort is back. And of course, because she said Voldemort. Yeah, Harry felt a lot better about the situation, like he's had an effect on her. Yeah. And that happens the first time that she said it was still back in the common room. Yep. This is now the second time that she's used his name, at least in the books. And Harry is now used to hearing her say it because it's happened before. 
And he's been saying it for a while anyway. Yeah. But of course, everybody else in the group just gasps and has some sort of big reaction. And I think somebody falls off of a chair and it's pretty dramatic. We definitely already talked about this, not on the podcast, but I still think it's super weird that Hermione doesn't want to say Voldemort's name as she's a muggle-born, but... I think it would have been a similar thing to Harry as... He had no idea yeah. that you weren't supposed to be saying the name and didn't exactly. understand the fear of it, despite how he was directly affected by it. Yep. I don't see how Hermione would have been able to gather that fear out of the books that she read that he was included in. Maybe she spends a lot of time with McGonagall and McGonagall instilled the fear in her. Could be. I think that's what Sarah's been exploring. That's in true. Her book, yeah. So. I also don't think McGonagall's all that afraid of him, though. I don't think she is, but she also calls him you-know-who up until the seventh one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because when her and Dumbledore meet up in the first one, the very first time you meet her, she says you-know-who, and Dumbledore's like, surely a woman as smart as you can use his real name. It's true. And I don't think she does until the seventh one. We certainly don't get enough opportunity to see McGonagall being a badass. That's true. But... As these are not badass McGonagall wizards, these are students, they all freak out and then look right at Harry because Harry is the one who initially said Voldemort's back. So they're like, please confirm this. And there's a blonde Hufflepuff Quidditch player that Harry only recognized from seeing him on the Quidditch team who aggressively is like, well, we want proof. Where's the proof he's back? It's a very dark thing to ask somebody to talk about, like you're going to talk about your classmate's death. Yeah. Anyway, Hermione starts to respond that Dumbledore believes it. And he's like, Dumbledore believes him. We yeah. still want proof. Ron is just like, who the hell are you? And at this point, we learn that it's Zachariah Smith. And then he also says that he thinks they got the right to know exactly what makes Harry say, you know, who is back. And I honestly can kind of see where he's coming from wanting a little bit more evidence but there's a difference between they were flat out asking harry to talk about how diggory died and that's not a situation that you should ask somebody to talk about that's a very stressful situation yeah and we'll end up talking a little bit more about that as we get through this so so this basically happens in the movie with slight differences when we start the movie section hermione speaking to the dejected souls who have been irrevocably affected by the Pepto Bitch Mall. Hermione announces that they are in need of a proper teacher when one we can only assume is Zachariah Smith decides to speak his ill informed mind and ask why they need to learn all this. Ron Sassy retorts and says that, because you know who's back, you toss pot. And then we end up with a terrible rendition of, you know who's on first. Who's on first? You know. But I don't know. You know who. You know who on who, first, but who? <laughs> yeah, it really is terrible because it's more like Dumbledore says, Harry says, back and forth, back and forth, all about Dumbledore. It's like the scene in Goblet of Fire where Hermione's just like, no, Ron wanted me to tell you that Dean told Pavati told that Lavender said Hagrid's looking for him or whatever it all was. Yeah, whatever it all was. And Harry was just like, yeah, well, you can go tell Ron to suck my dick. Like, <laughs> But actually, he's more like, what? <laughs> right? <laughs> Wait, what? That's kind of the situation. Everybody's like doing a round robin of Dumbledore says because Harry says because Dumbledore says because Harry says. Yeah. And it's all not matching up with apparently what Zachariah Smith wants to hear. 
And I agree with you that this is clearly supposed to be Zachariah Smith, but we never get his name in the movie. Hufflepuffs don't have names in movies unless they're Cedric Diggory. So. Until Newt comes along, really. Sad Hufflepuff yeah. sob. I mean, you get Justin Finch Fletchley and there's a couple. They do Ernie Mac a little bit. Yeah, your puffs got done dirty. It's true. Ravenclaws did too. I will say that. Probably even more so. Yes, because their colors are wrong. Their colors are wrong. And the one real Ravenclaw that you actually get to meet, they like threw her under the bus and gave her the bad character aspects, even though it wasn't her in the books, which we're getting to. So, yeah, you know, we'll just let that slide for now. In the book, Hermione's really trying to keep them away from this topic. She's just like, no, we're not actually here to talk about this. We're talking about defense against the dark arts. But Harry's just like, no, you know what? I will address this. The only proof that you need is that I saw him. If you're not going to believe me, I'm not going to waste my time trying to convince you. I saw him. End of story. I don't really know how else you would convince people because it's a situation where you don't have any other proof other than you saw him. Right. Like, what do you want me to do? I brought back Cedric's dead body. Do you think I killed him? And is that a conversation that they have? Oh, you know the Slytherins were saying that. I'm sure the Slytherins were, but do these little Hufflepuffs think that... Harry Potter murdered Cedric Diggory, a 17-year-old wizard who had a lot more experience than Harry? I would assume that the ones that showed up to this meeting don't think that. But I also think that there's this morbid curiosity where they just... It's not even necessarily morbid curiosity if you also consider the fact that when somebody dies unexpectedly, you're left with a lot of questions that you want answered. You need to be able to understand and comprehend and that could be what this is partially, especially for the Hufflepuffs and like Cho who's there that really are still trying to wrap their mind around somebody important to them being gone. I think that particularly this book makes me think how much there should be mental health care in the wizarding oh, world. Oh, 100%. And as much as I say all of that in their defense, Zacharias is also just a total little douchebag who is being a dick right now. Very un-Hufflepuff Hufflepuff. Yeah, because he's completely like, well, Dumbledore only said that Diggory was killed by you-know-who and Harry brought him back. We didn't get any details. So my problem with Zachariah Smith in that instance is where's your loyalty, sir? Yeah, he just flat out says he thinks they'd all like to know how Diggory got murdered. Like, do you want a play-by-play? His ex-girlfriend is in the room. She does not want a play-by-play. I can almost guarantee it. She definitely wants to talk about it, but more like her feelings about it, not the details, I think. She needs a therapist. Well, they all do. <laughs> Harry, especially. And Harry's response to this is, if you think that I'm here to describe you exactly how it looks when Voldemort murders somebody, you are in the wrong place. You may as well just go. We're not going to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. If that is what you're here for, bye. And that's so re-traumatizing for Harry to have to think about his family. I mean, he has to describe this situation that happened, and then he also has to think back to when his parents... I mean, he was there when his parents were murdered. Yeah, he might not remember it fully, but that definitely triggers something for sure. No, I don't want to talk about how this guy got murdered in front of me because it also happens to be the way that my parents got murdered yeah. in front of me. And this makes him pretty upset with Hermione because... Now he feels like she just set him up to be the freak that everybody wants to hear his wild story, but nobody really wants to listen to him otherwise. And of course, that's not what she did at all. She was not intending for people to come and be like, 
hey, tell me how decorated. Like, that's not what no. anybody wanted. And that's exactly why she tried to steer the conversation away from that. But despite Harry telling them that they should leave, they don't. So there is some genuine interest in being properly taught, too. And probably still a little bit of the curiosity lingering. Maybe we'll hear something along the way. Yeah, it's very similar to when you, like you said, have somebody near you that dies unexpectedly. You want to know what happened, but in like a respectful way. Like, oh, this person is fairly young. What happened to them? I don't know why they didn't believe Harry when he was saying that Voldemort was back. You want to know all those details and yeah, to understand like what happened. But you don't have to have like in-depth gritty details to understand Voldemort's back, Cedric's dead. But apparently they think they do. They're wrong. Again, similar in the movie, not exact, the maybe Zachariah Smith says that the only reason Dumbledore says that Voldemort's back is because Harry says so. The sass hole, for lack of a better term, asks for proof that Moldy Voldy is back. A boy sitting next to Ginny, who I'm going to assume is her current beau Michael Corner, which we have not technically learned about yet, but we will. We will. He then asks to know more about how Diggory died. And today on Things That We Don't Fucking Want to Talk About, starring Harry Potter... Right, how Diggory died. And so this is very similar. Mm -hmm. It's just a different person bringing it up. Like, the same things are happening, but they kind of assign the roles to different people. Yes. And just to give one-line wonders their lines. So... Then the sad basset hound eyes of Cho meet Harry's. Harry quickly gets to his feet and in an amazing bit of self-advocation, which he usually doesn't have, says that he's not going to talk about Cedric. Continuing to say, if that's the only reason that they came, they better clear off. Harry turns to Hermione and exasperatedly says that they should just leave because everyone is here because they think he's some sort of freak. And this is just a flat out ding. Like, that is spot on to how that happened. Yeah, that is 100% how that happened in the book. And that situation is so sad because he's so frustrated because he wanted to teach them. And they're not here to listen to that. They're here to hear the sad tale of yeah. Harry and the skipper. <laughs> well, I think it's not even just that he was already a little reluctant about teaching them. And this is just kind of like needling at that. Even though there was a part of him that was excited about this and started planning lessons, he was also really nervous about it. And this is like his worst fears realized about this scenario. So this situation particularly, which intrigues me, is that Harry doesn't end up becoming a teacher after this. Right? He becomes an Auror. And I just am like, are you a training Auror? Because you would be really good at that. Like, your teaching skills are top-notch. I wonder if that's the kind of aura that he was. Maybe he ran the aura training program. They definitely don't tell you that in Cursed Child. No. <laughs> so right now we're at a moment where it lines up. And in the book, everybody's just staring at Harry. Hermione just keeps on talking because she did promise him that she would manage most of this. Harry only spoke up to shut down all of that shit about how Cedric Diggory died and proof that Voldemort's back. And Hermione tries to continue on topic saying that if you are interested in learning real defense against the dark arts then we need to figure out how we're going to logistically do this the when the where the how then something happens that actually ends up being the saving grace and basically ties it into the movie pretty well when a girl it's the girl that harry wasn't sure when we were going through all of the introduction last episode 
of all of the people that walked into the bar, there was one girl that Harry didn't recognize who speaks up at this point, wanting to know if it's true that Harry can produce a Patronus. I'm so intrigued that he doesn't know who she is. She's in his year and they have classes with the Hufflepuffs. Harry, are you that self-centered, sir? He is definitely oblivious. (laughs) He's the dumb Gryffindor. Sometimes. Sometimes. Definitely not a Ravenclaw. So in the movie, Luna, our ever-present empath, looks over at Cho with her kind eyes. And then responding to Harry says, Is it true you can produce a Patronus charm? This causes pause in the audience of the Hogwarts students. Harry stares, but Hermione, as always, is ready with an answer. And she tells them yes, and that she's seen his Patronus, because she has. Because Harry saved her life. Right. So this is another one of those moments where they're just kind of reassigning the role. Yes. Because it is not this girl that Harry doesn't know. It is Luna, who obviously she's pretty important to the story. And they're probably just trying to give her a little bit bigger of a role, I would imagine. Really, in both the book and the movie, I would say that the group begins to murmur over this news. They do. The book has Harry answer it, though, not Hermione. He just gives a very defensive yes, like, what are you getting at with this? And then the girl wants to know if it's a corporeal Patronus, which triggers a little ding in Harry's memory. He's like, where have I heard that before? And he remembers Madame Bones at his hearing, who said the exact same thing. A corporeal Patronus? And he's like, wait, do you know Madame Bones? And then this girl explains that she's her auntie, saying that she is Susan Bones. And then again wants to know, like, is it true that you make a stag Patronus? That's what my aunt said. I love this line with Jim Dale recording it because he says, she's my auntie. And it's so cute and very much for a grown man, a cute little girl moment. It was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, it's Harry that is doing the confirmation, not Hermione. And he says that it is a stag Patronus. And this really impresses Lee Jordan, who's like, oh, my gosh, I never knew that about you. Which makes Fred smile because he's like, yeah, mom told us not to say anything to anybody. She figured you got enough attention as it was. And Harry's just like, yeah, well, she's not wrong. And she's not wrong. She's not wrong. And I think that enough people know that to get it because they kind of chuckle when he says this. So in the movie, we trade Lee Jordan for Dean, the one line wonder. Basically, he says the same line. He's very impressed by the fact that Harry can produce this Patronus. And Neville ends up piping up to say that Harry killed a giant nope rope with the sword in Dumbledore's office. Jenny confirms that. And Ron spouts off that in their third year, Harry fought off about 100 Dementors at once, which is true. It is all true. And this is interesting because we did get all of this information ahead of time when Ron and Hermione are listing it off for Harry, like, look at all of the stuff that you've done. And then they kind of go through it again, except now it's the random people in the school listing it off. But again, they reassigned it because it's actually Terry Boot in the book who says that he killed the basilisk with the sword in Dumbledore's office, mentioning that one of the portraits up there told him. I love the idea of the portraits gossiping, by the way. That's the best thing that they're like, oh, do you know Harry Potter? Because you're in his year. Did you know he did this? Did you know he did that? Because we're sitting in Dumbledore's office watching it all happen. Yeah. And then Harry confirms that that is accurate, which make even more people look impressed. So now it's just like he can produce a Patronus. He killed a basilisk. And then Neville speaks up also to tell everybody about how Harry saved the Sorcerer's Stone. If you're in America or the Philosopher's Stone in Britain. 
But does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. In the American version, at least, he actually says the sorceress stone, which really makes me wonder if he called it the wrong thing in the British book, too. And I'm definitely going to have to look that up when I get to the episode that we do that compares the UK version to the US version. Because I want to know how they messed that up, but I didn't do it right now. This is just something that popped into my head at the moment. Maybe he says the psychologist stone. Maybe, right? <laughs> so Neville mentions the sorceress stone, not the giant note rope, which is interesting to me. Slight little change. Wasn't really necessary in my opinion. But I do like this because it kind of leads back to Neville and Jenny having a relationship, a friendship after the Yule Ball, after they went on their little date. Yeah, I think that that fits in too because earlier in this book, when he introduced himself to Luna as no one, she was just like, stop that, you are someone, you know? Just immediately like, don't you dare do that to yourself. At this point in the book, Cho also reminds everybody of all of the badass things that Harry did to get through the Quad Wizard Tournament. Mentioning the dragons, the mer people, the acromantulas, and all about the whatnot because it's all about the whatnot. Always about the whatnot. This moment makes Harry so happy. Anytime Cho like looks at him, he either gets, you know, the awkward boner or <laughs> just super prideful and happy, feeling light and fluttery. He feels very Gryffindor when she looks at him. Yes. And he actually has a really hard time not looking pleased with himself in this moment. He's like trying to be humble about all of this stuff and Cho compliments him and he just like wants to grin ear from ear like the Cheshire cats. And he's just like, must be serious, must be serious, must be serious. But S-E-R-I-O-U-S, not S-I-R-I-U-S. Serious. He's very much a jock. Uh-huh. I can see that totally. In an effort to continue on with being a little bit more humble he speaks up to say that he had a lot of help with all of that stuff. But Michael's just like, not with the dragon. That was just awesome flying. And Susan pointed out that nobody helped him with the Dementors over the summer either. So Harry's just like, okay, well, I had to help with a lot of it. Small question about Susan. Is her auntie coming home and telling her about all of these things that she's doing at work? Isn't there like privilege in the wizarding world? Privacy? Seems very much like maybe you shouldn't talk about it. I kind of wonder if maybe Susan Bones has a little crush on Harry and her auntie is just feeding into it a little bit. She does live with her auntie because once you get into the Bones's details, Susan's parents were actually killed around the same time that Harry's parents were killed. So her auntie is raising her, so she would know that. Yeah. As a little cutesy thing. She I probably like it. does. New headcanon. But anyway, so Harry is really just trying to show some humility, but Zacharias, being the sasshole that he is, makes this comment about how he's trying to weasel out of showing them anything or teaching them anything. And I don't think Ron likes the use of the word weasel because he gets really sassy back to him and just tells him to shut his mouth. And sasshole over there is just like, but we've all turned up to learn from him. And now he's saying he can't really do any of this shit. And Fred and George are just in one of my favorite moments which if i'm being honest most of fred and george moments are my favorite moments but they're like um that's not what harry was saying do you need us to clean out your ears and they pull some sort of lethal looking metal instrument out of their zonko's bag and just threaten him with it and i'm really upset that that wasn't in the movie because he was being a sasshole you think that's a probity probe maybe zachariah smith must be around jenny's age i think they're in the same year she's gonna take care of him Oh, that is definitely something Jenny's going to do. Probably a bat bogey hex. She is good at it. 
As the flashback of the books winds down, Hermione mentions the events in the graveyard, but she's swiftly cut off by Harry. Harry explains that, as often is true, the cool-ass stuff that you do is also scary as fuck. Yeah. It's often based on faith, trust, and pixie dust. Or maybe just a dash of luck. Definitely the luck, but I have no problem with pixie dust being involved. Well, pixies in Harry Potter are blue, so that would be blue glitter everywhere. Maybe the Ravenclaws do get something. Maybe. In true Harry fashion, he says that he didn't know what he was doing half the time and nearly always had help. It is nice to know that he knows he would have died in the first year without Hermione. Yeah, and I think that he is very aware of that, that his humility is not him faking it. I think he genuinely sees himself for what he is, maybe even a little bit self-deprecatingly. Yeah, he definitely doesn't recognize his smarts sometimes. And his strengths in general. Yes. And I always think about this when Max talks about how much he hates Harry. Because we get the whole book from Harry's perspective. And when you have a self-deprecating narrator, a lot of times it can color your own perception of that character. I felt the exact same way about Bella in Twilight. But then read Midnight Sun and it changes your perspective. Yeah, it did. Of how the book is. Yeah. I never really thought of it that way. That you're seeing everything from Harry's kind of third person perspective. But you really are getting everything through his eyes and thought process and how he's reading people and not really actually what they're doing right and he's definitely oblivious and also critical of certain characters even more so which is understandable but we are getting a very colored perspective of it straight from harry's eyes not necessarily reality maybe malfoy's actually a nice guy i don't know if i'd go that far but maybe he has redeeming qualities he definitely does but we don't have to get into that today. Anyway, Hermione eye-rolls Harry and says that he's just being modest. Harry loudly objects that he isn't. He puts things into perspective that real life is not like school. He's had his ass handed to him way more times outside of school hours than in. Unsurprisingly, the group of teenagers are staring in horror as Harry describes how terrifying it is to be inches from death or, hey, even watching your hunky Hufflepuff friend get murdered right before your eyes. And again, this is lining up with what the book had. Slightly different, but the gist is definitely giving us the same vibe. They definitely streamlined this a lot to make it a shorter scene so that Harry is saying all of this in a condensed moment. Right. The Hogwarts students realize that Harry maybe isn't being a liar about Voldemort coming back. And Hermione, saying Voldemort's name for the first time in the movies sits down next to Harry and say that they don't know what it's like to watch your friends die or to be so close to death, but he can help them understand that. And this is really interesting. Katie and I mentioned this last week when we were at the book section about her saying Voldemort for the first time, because it does happen here. It is a very similar thing. It's her stuttering through saying it. She is being brave, but it also does not make any sense for movie Hermione to do that because back in Chamber of Secrets she specifically took Dumbledore's line and said fear of a name yeah I definitely think that that's weird again saying that she's a muggle-born and I just don't think that there would be any actual fear behind the name but even if they wanted to put it that way because that's how the books had it so even if we're going to go with that the movies are already contradicting it accurate so it's just kind of a 
for fuck's sake moment. Can you get it straight? And I know that when you switch through different directors, continuity does become an issue. But maybe just do a little bit of research. Maybe read the books. Almost like they didn't read all of the books before they got to making this. Perhaps watch the previous movies too. Who knows? Whatever they do, I know that they're going to end up remaking this in the future. I don't know if it's going to be soon in the future, but at some point in the future, we will end up getting a Harry Potter remake. It's an amazing cash grab. You know they're going to do it. I'm okay with it. But I really hope that it's one person that sits down and does the whole thing. Maybe does like the TV series idea that floats around where it is the same people involved the whole time. Maybe multiple writers that have really studied the books and love the books. And definitely with Chanel Williams cast as McGonagall. Obviously. <laughs> I will say that if they go and remake the movies as movies in a few years, Tom Felton should play Dumbledore. I'd be okay with that. Mm. Dumbledore. I would also be okay with Jude Law doing it. Like he's going to age into being the proper age by then. Daniel Radcliffe can play Snape. I'd be okay with that too. Yeah. Bring him back. Bring him back. That would be fun. But anyway, back to the episode at hand. So Harry's still sitting here trying to get them to understand because, hey, there's real fucking danger out there. Nigel, our cute rando replacement of the Creevy brothers, then asks if he's really back. Harry nods in a somber kind of way, and the group in the hogshead seem to accept this as an answer. And this actually doesn't really happen in the movie like that. Nobody is flat out like, is he really back? I think that the majority of these people do believe it already or they wouldn't have bothered to show up at all. It would have been more of a situation like with Seamus, who was not present for this scene but shows up later where he thinks Harry's a lying liar pants and that they're on fire. And this is kind of different than how the book had it because there isn't really a moment where the group is just like, is he really back? Because this has been established. The people who showed up to this probably really do genuinely believe that he's back. And some of them are just being morbidly curious and want more information about it. I don't think that if they didn't believe him, they would have come. Absolutely not. So I think that that mistrust in Harry would have kept people away. And these people are predominantly trusting or are there with people who are trusting or really, really, really want proper defense against the Dark Hearts classes. Instead, in the book, what actually happens is that... They don't really focus on, is Voldemort really back or not? It's just, hey, do you want to learn defense against the dark arts? How should we do it? And even though they get off topic a little bit talking about Diggory, Hermione brings it right back and says, how often should we meet? And Angelina, of course, says that it can't interfere with their Quidditch practice, which makes Cho and Zacharias say it can't interfere with Hufflepuff's or Ravenclaw's practices either. That's fine. They can do it on Slytherin nights. Right? I feel like that works out pretty well because there are no Slytherins there. And that's basically what Hermione says, that I'm sure that we'll find a suitable knight, <laughs> Slytherin knight. And she then reminds them that this is something that's really important. Like, I know Quidditch is important, but we are learning to defend ourselves against Voldemort and his murder munchers. This makes Ernie McMillan bark out a well said. So now she's getting hear hears and well saids from the audience. And she's got to be feeling pretty good about herself at this point. And then he goes on to talk about how this is possibly even more important than their OWLs. And he looks around in his very pompous manner, just waiting for somebody to deny this. It's like he wants that fight. 
but nobody does. So he's just like, okay, well, I guess I just don't understand why we'd get such a useless teacher when you were in such an important year. And it's kind of the same thing I mentioned back when Hermione was venting about this. Like, yes, they were specifically like, oh, Harry Potter's in his fifth year right now. We should give him a shitty defense against the dark arts teacher. Like, that hasn't been happening every year all along, guys. Get your heads out of your butts. It's the curse. It is definitely the curse. And at this point, Hermione tells them that they think that Pepto Bitchmall's whole thing is that Dumbledore wants to use the students in a private army against the ministry. Rabble rousers. Yeah. This kind of shocks everybody except for Luna who is completely unfazed by the news and says that it makes sense because Fudge has his own private army, which then shocks Harry, who's like, wait, Fudge has a private army? I don't think that the Order knows anything about this. And then, of course, we get another amazing Luna moment where she says, yeah, it's an army of Heliopaths. Which was our trivia question. Yeah, and then when Neville's like, a what, Teopath? She says that they're very tall spirits of fire and they apparently just cause all of this chaos by running around and setting things on fire. I'm very curious if Hogwarts students have to take some sort of Latin class because if he had, Helio, sun, fire, you gotta put it together, Neville. I don't think that they do. No, but they should. They really should because then they could invent their own spells. Like if you understand that stuff. Then they'd be like Snape, Sectum Simpra. Snape clearly studied Latin in some way, shape or form. More than likely. Hermione, as Hermione will do, has to correct Luna and A, point out that Fudge does not have an army of heliopaths and B, point out that they don't even exist, which then she and Luna begin arguing about. And this could probably have gone on for quite a while. I can just imagine this. Yes, they do. No, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't. Another round robin of who's on first. Right. And Ginny, in one of my favorite Ginny moments does the perfect impression of Umbridge clearing her throat. Him, 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 him. To the point that several people look around in alarm because they think Umbridge is actually there. And then they realize that it was just Ginny and they all start cracking up. But thankfully, it also gets everything back on track. They're like, okay, this argument is stupid. Let's focus on the fact that we have to figure out the logistics of this. And they settle on one time a week to start. And they still need to figure out the day because they have to coordinate with all of the different Quidditch practices. But they go ahead and move on to discuss where they're going to meet. This is actually a lot more difficult because finding a place where you can fit 25 people, 28 if you count the Golden Trio, in one place where you can practice, they're like, maybe we could ask McGonagall if we can use an empty classroom, but then that would be pretty obvious. And eventually they're just like, yeah, we'll figure this out and we'll find a way to send you a message when we have the first meeting in place planned. They have reached the teacher dilemma of not knowing where to put their students. Yeah. But anyway, at this point, Hermione reaches into her bag and she pulls out a parchment and a quill, kind of just takes this deep breath because she's about to do something, even though we don't quite know what that is at this point. But she tells everybody that she thinks they should write their name down. That way they're going to know who was there. And it's also them agreeing to not shout about what they're doing saying, you sign this paper, you are agreeing that you will not tell Pepto Bitchmall or anybody who supports her and anybody else, really. This is our secret. Sign here, secret. One of the reasons why I love the twins so much is Fred immediately gets up and signs and George follows, but 
a lot of other people are like, um, do I want to put my name down as evidence? I also like that one of them, I don't remember which one, Fred or George, just immediately goes to hand the quill to somebody and is like shoving it in their face. Right. I think that was Ernie because he's the one who's like, uh, we're prefix. What happens if Umbridge does find out about this? And Hermione's just like, weren't you the one who said that this is going to be the most important thing we do all year? And also wants to know if he honestly thinks that she'd just leave this list lying around for just anyone to find. And this is enough to make Ernie agree to sign. And after that, nobody else protests. And everybody there signs it after the last person does. They're left with this very odd feeling like they just signed some sort of contract. I believe that's what we would call a jinx. Which we don't know this yet, except that we do because obviously we've read these before. But yeah, that's exactly what just happened. So we'll talk more about that later. After everybody signed to Fred and George are like, yep, gotta go. We and Lee Jordan have some sensitive items to purchase. And I'm sure it's something for the Weasley Wizarding Wheezes, but I also kind of wonder what they can possibly buy in Hogsmeade of a sensitive nature. But after they start to leave, everybody else just starts leaving with their little groups of two or three. And Cho is clearly trying to hold out to be the last one left so she can talk to Harry. But her friend that's with her, who we know is Marietta, but we haven't actually met her by name at this point, we just know her as the curly-haired friend. She's like strawberry blonde curly hair. That's really all we have. And that she's apparently very impatient with Joe. And very mistrusting in Harry. Maybe she has some ill will towards him just being a best friend of Cho. And being like, this boy's not making a move. He's not helping with the situation. You know, being very teenage girl. Because yeah. they're 16, right? Because Cho's yeah. older than Harry. Yeah, I'm inclined to think at this point it is a protective friend sort of thing. But I also know what we find out later that there is a little bit more to it than that. Anyway, she has no desire to hang around to talk to Harry. She's not the one with the crush on Harry. So she eventually just, we gotta go bitches, Cho, right out of the hog's head. And Cho is left to just give a very cheery wave to Harry and that's it. After everybody else is gone and it's just the golden trio, Hermione's pretty happy and says she thinks that went well. And they all have the last bits of their butterbeer as they walk out. And Ron responds to this by expressing intense dislike for the sassholes, Zacharias, which I guess I can't blame him. He was definitely, yeah. Boy's in my house and I don't like him. Right? And even Hermione says that she doesn't like him either. But she had to invite him because he overheard her telling Ernie and Hannah and seemed interested. And she thought the more the better. She also mentions that Michael Corner and his friends wouldn't have come at all if he weren't going out with Ginny. And Ron is just like, wait, what? <laughs> chokes on that butterbeer. Full on chokes on the last of his butterbeer. And I honestly, when I first read this, I thought it was the strangest thing ever that they left the bar with their butterbeer still. But I think it was done just so Ron could choke on it. I just think that she wanted that visual image of Ron doing a choking spit take to learn that his baby sister has a boyfriend. Spit takes are you definitely have to have something in your hand. You got to have something for that spit take. And it's very disappointing that that actual bit of physical comedy did not make it into the movie. Nor do you find out that Ginny is getting more confident in herself by dating a lot of people. Right. They just had them sitting next to each other. 
which is like you said that you assume that that's her current beau, Michael Corner, but it's never actually introduced. It is only barely implied. Reasons book Ginny is 10,000 times better than movie Ginny. Absolutely. But anyway, Ron manages probably, I assume, to stop choking on Butterbeer and blusters about this news. And Hermione tells him that they met at the Yule Ball last year. So unlike how the movie portrayed it, that she was out late with Neville all night, she actually ended up meeting Michael Corner at the Yule Ball and they hit it off and they started seeing each other at the end of last year. And that's all she really cares about it. She gets distracted by the fact that they're in front of the quill shop and she needs a new quill. Same school supplies. Right. And Harry and Ron follow her in, mostly because Harry's going to follow her wherever she goes as he just floats on his cloud thinking about Cho. But Ron, because he really wants to know more about this whole situation and he's demanding to know which one Michael Corner was. In this part, we were talking about this when we were plotting stuff out for this. And Hermione describes him as the dark one. And I don't know if this is a British thing, but it's going to become our pondering because... When I read that he was the dark one, I imagined him to have dark hair, and I kind of just pictured him as emo. But when I read it, I pictured him maybe as a person of color. And from what we can tell, it seems like that's kind of just a thing on the internet, too. Yes, there is a Reddit thread about, is he just emo, or is he a tall, dark, and handsome kind of lad? And that's why I was kind of wondering if it was a British thing, that to say the dark one, like you have the blonde one and the dark one. Is that just how they describe brunettes, maybe? Maybe. But we don't know because it could go either way, really. So we want your opinion on that. We're interested. That'll be our pondering. We'll come back to that. Ron immediately states that he doesn't like him, which Hermione's like, well, obviously you're not going to. That's not shocking to me. And then Ron continues on, not even listening to Hermione at all, saying that he thought Ginny fancied Harry. And I love this part so much because Hermione's just like, well, Ginny used to fancy Harry. And then like undertones of, I told her she should move on. <laughs> but in reality, she just says she gave up on him months ago and then like worried that maybe she insulted Harry. She's like, but she does still like you. Like she thinks you're a wonderful person. She just doesn't want to date you anymore. Except that she also kind of does. But that is beside the point. Ginny is moving on and Ron is caught up in this. I like that Ron is like offended that she likes somebody else for like Harry's sake. Like your sister likes your best friend. But then now she likes somebody else. Ugh, I don't want her to like either. Such a big brother. I kind of feel like Ginny liking Harry felt safe to Ron because he didn't think Harry would ever return that i think that he figured she'd be like a little sister to him too and that was just safe but then jenny liking anybody at all is obviously not okay so he has to be the big brother and then throughout all of this like i said harry is just floating on the cho cloud he's just over there going cho ching and has no care in the world for any of this conversation but he does kind of pick up on the fact that, oh, that's why she talks in front of me now. Because she used to just like deer in headlights freeze. And then sometimes even dirt from the room. or Which is adorable. Yeah, I love it. But I always kind of figured that Ginny needed to get over her crush on Harry to develop real feelings. Yes. I assumed that that's what this was. Starstruck is what I always kind of yeah. took it as when she meets him at 11 well she meets him when she's 10 she's but 10. 
she meets him and it's just kind of like, oh, it's a famous guy. Of course, I want to talk to the famous guy. Oh my you gosh, know? it's Harry Potter. It's Harry Potter. You got to get over the he's famous aspect. Right. She had a crush on him as the hero and then developed real feelings for him as a person. I mean, he did save her life, so. Understandably. Yeah. He can be both. But anyway, Hermione confirms to Harry that this is exactly why Ginny talks in front of him now and then gets her quill and goes to pay for it and Ron's still like and she turns around to him and she says this is why Ginny didn't tell you because she knew you'd take it badly and Ron's like I'm not taking it badly I just think that my sister needs to get one of those chastity belts that's all that's reasonable wonder how he feels when Ginny gets pregnant for the first time (laughs) (laughs) Hermione just rolls her eyes at this and then changes the subject by turning to Harry and saying, talking about Michael and Ginny, what about you and Cho? He's got that choner boner. Exactly what that is. The awkward choner boner. Cho Chang. But Harry is like, what do you mean? And he's just really worried that he's super obvious. Like, is there drool on my face? You probably have a boner in your robes, sir. Right. Is there drool on my face? Is my awkward boner showing? Like, that's totally what's happening right here. But Hermione just smiles at him and says, she couldn't keep her eyes off you, could she? And Harry's just like, back on his cloud. Oh, Hogsmeade is so beautiful. He needs a giant notebook like in Romeo and Michelle. And Alan Cummings' character always had his giant notebook when he came around Lisa Kudrow's character because he always had a boner. (laughs) Hold, Hold it in front. That's not how it happens in the movie, which streamlines the logistics nearly all the way out of it. Instead, we get a little montage of them signing Dumbledore's army, but Fred and George are still first, which makes me happy. You can see their names at the top. Yeah, yay, little ding. Little ding. I like the little ding. The camera pans to show Harry, Ron, and Hermione looking happier than they have in a while. And that is literally, like, all we got of the conversation Mm -hmm. of after everything signing. Our scene changes to the Golden Trio and the Weasleys walking across the covered bridge and discussing what they could use as a practice space. Which is the closest that it gets to having this conversation. They had it during the meeting a little bit, couldn't agree to anything, and just moved on and went to signing the letter. So now it's a little bit out of order, but it still touches base with it. Some ideas are tossed around. Ginny, in her one-line wonder, gets to suggest the Shrieking Shack, but Harry vetoes that by saying it's too small. Which it is. It is. Only built for one werewolf, not 25 to 28 students. Right. Hermione shockingly suggests the forest, but Ron vetoes that by saying not bloody likely. And there's two reasons why I don't like this addition, because it definitely didn't get suggested in the book at all. There's no way Hermione would suggest doubling up the illegality of this by going into the forest with a club that they're... Well, I guess at this point it's not illegal, but they're still not really supposed to do this and trying to keep it quiet. And Hermione's like, let's also break the rules and go into the Forbidden Forest. I understand her line of thinking, or at least the writer's line of thinking here, is that Hermione would be like, that's a place nobody would go. Yes. Except Hagrid. But also, they're not supposed to go there. So it might look super sus if 28 people just randomly make their way out to the Forbidden Forest on random evenings. Disappointing that Ginny did not recommend the Chamber of Secrets. Because Harry's the only one that would be able to access that. Yes, but also, I don't know that she would want to go back down there. Oh, that's true. Very traumatizing for her. Being the mom of the group, Ginny asks what happens if they get caught. 
Hermione, in an uncharacteristically rude manner, cuts her off and says, who cares? I really don't like this line. Yeah, it is not very Hermione at all. It definitely didn't happen in the book. I guess this is like funny. I think they were attempting to make it funny, but it comes off as Hermione being rude to Jenny and they're friends. They're not jokey like that no. friends. Well, Hermione's not like that. No, that's not Hermione's personality if at Ron all. Ron said it, it'd be completely fine. Sounds totally like something a big brother would say to a little sister. And it also sounds exactly like something Ron would say. It does. But I guess Hermione's finally accepted that being a Gryffindor means rule breaking's fun. I love this, though, because there's the memes about how she's just like, it's sort of exciting, isn't it? Breaking the rules. And then it shows her like setting a teacher on fire and being out of bed after hours and just. Yes. Yes, because this is the first time you've ever broken the rules, Hermione. The one that shows where she's freaking out about Harry attacking Snape in the Shrieking Shack. You attacked a teacher. Then it shows her attacking Snape with fire. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just weird. And I'm sure they just thought it'd be funny. Have Hermione say this funny, cute line and continuity. And they still get to have Ron say the who are you and what have you done with Hermione Granger thing. And that's funny. But like... Could she have said it to somebody else? Because to Ginny, it just seems mean. Yeah. But matchmaker Hermione smiles and brings up the positives that came out of the day, telling Harry that Cho clearly couldn't take her eyes off of him. And that is basically what happened in the book, except in a completely different context. Like, it was just the three of them. She even was saying it in undertone only to Harry. But in this situation, she just dropped that in front of everybody. And you see Fred and George exchange a gleeful look. And you see Ginny actually look kind of upset by this, which, I mean, even dating somebody, I think it might have kind of bothered her a little bit. But it implies that she wasn't dating somebody the way that they did it in the movie. I think that this is also another mean moment from Hermione to Jenny. She knows. Like, why are you acting like that? That's mean. Right. You don't bring that up in front of Jenny. That is not... Hermione is very tactful. And that was not tactful at all towards Jenny or Harry for that matter. I also like the fact that she brings this up like Cho had anywhere else to look. Right. Harry was the one speaking the whole time. Regardless, Harry is pleased, but future wifey is not. Yeah, it definitely got to Jenny a little bit. So that brings us to the end of the book chapter and where we cut off the movie since it's lining up pretty well here. We did have a lot more people present during this scene, but the ones that actually did something that we could really talk about, we've already talked about. So we don't really have any newer returning actors to discuss, and we can just move right on to our Potter pondering. So this week, we want to know, what did you imagine Michael Corner to look like when Hermione described him as the Dark One? Find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. Or call us at 216-526-6792 and leave your response as a voicemail. Make sure you start off telling us your name and then go into your answer. We really look forward to reading, hearing, and seeing them. This will bring us to our Sorting Hat story, which is from Cosplay Arthur, who we met at LeakyCon in Orlando. Cutest thing ever. He writes, My house is Gryffindor, with strong Hufflepuff undertones. My wand is Hazel, and my Patronus is the Gray Squirrel. 
I got into Harry Potter through my wife who read the first book, absolutely loved it, and so I read it as well. And the rest, they say, is history. As you know, book five is Order of the Phoenix. Arthur Weasley played his part in the Order, as did Molly and many others. Now that Voldemort is no more and Muggle relations are on a more even keel, Arthur is starting the Order of the Rubber Duck logo to follow soon. This is part of Arthur's Share the Magic, Share the Love campaign because we can all do with a lot more of both. The mission of the Order of the Rubber Duck is to expand wizarding knowledge and understanding of muggles and their customs and thereby dispel erroneous notions that impede wizard-muggle relationships. Dumbledore was all about love, not only for and among wizards, but house elves, goblins, giants, magical creatures, and yes, muggles. Well, that's just plain adorable. I know. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing your Sorting Hat story with us, Cosplay Arthur. I'm so disappointed I wasn't with you guys at LeakyCon to meet him. I know. He was so cute. He talked to us for quite a while on the last day when we were getting ready to leave. We just like stood around and just chatted with him. I like the order of the rubber duck. It sounds like a lovely thing. It really does. And if any of you other keepers out there listening would like us to read your Sorting Hat story on a future episode, you can email it to us at forfoxsakepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your house, wand, Patronus, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else you might want to share with us. Or you can message it to us over social media. So now we'll go to the trivia question. This week's trivia question is, what is Professor Grubbly Plank's first name? The first one who responds with the correct answer and the code word, hashtag not Hagrid, will get a sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us through iTunes or Facebook. Make sure to email us at forfoxsakepodcast at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we will get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at foxsakepod. Following us on Podbean at foxsakepod.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. You can also go to our website at forfoxsakepodcast.com to check out our For Fox Sake and Harry Potter related merchandise for sale. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we post our weekly podcast episodes, cooking show episodes, vlogs, bloopers, and other random videos. If you would like to support us as a patron, you can sign up on patreon.com slash foxsakepod. $2 and up a month will get you some awesome perks like For Fox Sake swag, access to patron-only Facebook groups, chats, our Discord channel, virtual hangouts, and more. As always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated, even if it's just telling your Harry Potter friends about us. And if you don't have any Harry Potter friends, there's another reason to join our Patreon because you will meet some of the best Harry Potter people ever. I mean, just the best people ever, really. There's that too. Period. End of sentence. I also just really want to say thank you so much, Carly, for jumping in to fill in this week. It was really fun having you here. Happy to do it anytime. We might have to rotate through patrons if something like this ever happens again, but definitely if we can get you back on, we will. Thanks so much. And join us next week when we talk about the first half of Chapter 17, Educational Decree Number 24, and the barely any film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. And in the meantime... Keep calming Harry on! Oh, for fuck's sake. 